Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to not Leviticus and not Numbers class. Because <laughs> we finished Leviticus, we're going to start Numbers next week and spend eight weeks there. But in between those two series of lessons, we're going to talk about this little handout that I gave y'all about towards understanding the whole Bible. And I know that this sheet and this title and what's on the YouTube machine is going to be different. And that's because I can't make up my mind. I don't know if it's toward or towards with an S, but the, the idea is uh, what are the major things that one needs to understand to be able to read the Bible as a whole in a way that they could understand it and most glorify God in their Bible reading. And I made this chart to be something that you could stick inside of your Bible and just look at it while you're reading through just to kind of jog your mind back through some things to help you understand a passage. And I'm going to need a volunteer to hand the, the rest of these out to people who don't have them yet. It's going to be you, Kathleen. Yeah. All right, so the Simmons will need one. And yeah, if you need a, if you haven't got a handout yet, if you'll raise a hand up, we'll get you a handout. And while those are being handed out, if you want to turn in your Bible to Ezra 7.10, that's in the First Testament, it's page 613. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be, be nice if we all have the same Bible? Same author, this is true. All right, Ezra 7.10, this is talking about uh, priest Ezra, and I want you to hear what he did and think of his example in relation to God's word. It says, for, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. So there's three things that Ezra had set his heart to do. Uh, what are those things? What's number one? To study. And what's the second thing? Yeah, to practice or to do it. Do you think that that order is important? Yeah, can you practice something you haven't studied? Only foolishness, right? <laughs> what is the third thing that he did? Right, and you think that the order is still important there. Study, practice, then teach. Because what, what if you have teaching without practice? Hypocrisy. Yeah, hypocrisy. So we want to have those things together. So when it comes to understanding the whole Bible, we want to, to study it first to live by it. 
but to live by it in order to be an example of it and have the ability to disciple others in it so that we can be disciple-making disciples. And here you see this connection of he's teaching the, the law of Yahweh, which is his, the instructions of Yahweh, and to teach his statutes and judgments. So he's starting with first God's law or God's instruction, and then the words statutes and judgment have to do with his principles and his decisions or his instruction on how you're to live by these things and then judgment is tied into the concept of worldview. This is how you understand how God makes decisions and that's how you're to make decisions as well. And as Christian people, we want to be able to grasp the Bible as a whole so that we can have a greater enjoyment in our God and to be most faithful as disciples and giving him glory in how we would live by his word and teach it to others as we study it. So when it comes to studying the Bible, it's a profitable task to figure out, well, what is the theme of the Bible? So if you guys were to try to come up with a, a statement on the theme of the whole Bible, what would you like to suggest? What is the theme of the whole Bible? And if you're in leadership training class, you can't answer yet. <laughs> Abby, go for it. All right, she's looking at the handout. She read my answer. What, what, do, what do you guys think would be some other good themes for understanding the Bible as a whole? If somebody said, well, what, what's the whole book about? You know, what's the one thing that makes sense of everything that's in it? Christ, yeah, that's a good one. The love of God. God the Savior, the sovereignty of God. There's been you know, multiple books written on trying to explain the theme of the Bible. One is called uh, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. That's a good one. It's about God's glory, and then it's specific on salvation through judgment. Another one was written called The King and His Beauty. That would be... Uh, it's focusing on God and you know, his glory, who he is being expressed. There's another book written called He Will Reign Forever. So that's the theme of the Bible. It's, it's about God and his kingdom and his reign. And what you, oh, you have one. Yeah. It's that phrase in Leviticus, you know, I am Yahweh your God. There's a, you could suggest that as a theme and write a large book on it. <laughs> but you kind of see how what happened with those book titles is that they moved from something that was a little more specific, you know, salvation to something bigger, which is God's glory and something even more general and, you know, his kingdom. And these are all major themes in the Bible, but kingdom is a greater encompassing theme than just salvation because it addresses uh, more topics that would fall under that heading. One of the things that uh, a professor that I, I had in teaching me the Bible, he, he taught the theme of the Bible as this, which I wrote down on your 
handout if you want to look at that. It's the glory of God in the reign of God. And this way you pull both of those together, that it's primarily about God and his reign in earth. And if you turn to the very first page in your Bible, Genesis 1-1, I think you begin seeing that in Scripture. I know that you have it memorized, but you can still turn there. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God. So who, who's the main character of this book? Ah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like, well, who, who's the main character of everything in existence? Yeah, he's not just the main character in Scripture, but existence and in the world that we live in. Now, you could think of you know, the, this, this world that he made is a, a theater which displays and communicates his glory. Everything's about displaying who he is and him making himself known which is on the chart there where it says the glory of God. I break that out into two subcategories to help you understand what the glory of God is because a lot of times we just use that word and take it for granted and then somebody says, well, what do you mean by glory? You're like, I don't know. We just say it. We're Christians. <laughs> well, the word glory is multifaceted, but here I've summed it up in God's attributes and activities or it's who God is and what God does. So when you think about that, you just start reading the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how would you answer the, the question, who is he and what does he do? Just from that verse. Who is God? Yeah, he's the creator and what does he do? Yeah, he, he creates. And you start here in the Bible from that foundation and it just keeps building. And you just keep learning more about God's attributes and activity. You keep learning more about his character and his will for his creation. But the glory of God is also expressed in the reign of God. That's R-E-I-G-N. And as one who reigns, we recognize that he's a king and every king has a kingdom. So you see that in every king also has a law or he has his covenants by which he rules. That's where his reign breaks out into his kingdom and covenants. So when you're reading the Bible as a whole, what you're looking at is like, well, what does this teach me about God's attributes and activities? Uh, what am I learning about his kingdom and his covenants? Now, when it comes to understanding God's kingdom, we see that beginning in the, in the very beginning of the Bible. We see the beginning of his kingdom and the first two chapters. And we see the conclusion of the culmination of that kingdom in the last two chapters. Which the first two chapters and the last two chapters in the Bible are the only chapters without sin in them. And all the chapters in the, the middle are about how we became separated from God's kingdom, even though his kingdom's still reigning and ruling over everything, but how do we go back to it just being God's kingdom rule and there is no other competitors or anything else? It's just God's people and God's land under God's blessing. So as you keep reading the Bible, God, as the king, he creates his place. So you think about this in Genesis 1. 
how this is structured. You have the days of creation. And in those days, God, he forms the earth and then he fills it. And that's the story. The first three days, he forms everything. Next three days, he fills it. And he, he plants in this land a seed of image bearers. You know, he plants his people to begin beginning his kingdom and his land, which is why in trying to come up with a way to teach this and make it memorable, you see this in the kingdom box there. You see the king's place is created in the first six days. Also, the king's people, which is the sixth day and in a way a climax to the creation week. And you see they're all living under the king's power. That's how everything came into existence, by God's word. You read ten times in the beginning of your Bible, God said, which isn't incidental that there's ten of those statements, which makes you uh, keep up with sets of ten throughout your Bible to see how they connect to the, the first ten here. And the king's power is tied to his blessing. Anything about blessing, it's another one of those Christian words that we throw around, but what is it? Well, when God blessed man here in the beginning of the Bible, he, he blessed them. This is uh, verse 28, 128. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So what was the blessing? Well, the blessing was a command to do something, but he also enabled them to do that command. So blessing in a way is power. It's the power of his word speaking and the, the power of his blessing enabling a people to do the thing which he has commanded that they do. And the king's power, it's given by him being present with his people and also his precepts, you see there. And all of those Ps are, you know, a preacher-alliterated teaching outline sort of thing to help you by a mnemonical device. <laughs> the, how you see these sort of things expressed in Bible words is what I put in the parentheses there. It's land seed blessing. That's what you see. God creates the land. He puts a seed there, which is the people, and he blesses them to be fruitful and multiply. And we know land seed and blessing not only being the acronym for the LSB Bible, but related to which covenant in Scripture that was made in Genesis 12. Actually, the contents were given in 12. It was ratified in 15. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> Genesis 12, listen, listen, you hear land, seed, and blessing there in Genesis 12. And Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So because of this, this is how God's kingdom is expressed. He's a king. He's a king over a place and a people. And you think about that throughout Leviticus. As we read that, we saw how people belong to God. Possessions belong to God. Land belongs to God. The seed belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. But you also see he's the one who is present with his people and he's giving them his precepts. This is all kingdom stuff. Even though you don't necessarily read the word kingdom, you're seeing the elements of it. 
You can think of it as, you know, God is a ruler, and he has a rulership, and it's within a realm. That's a three-point alliterated outline with R's instead of P's. There's a lot of ways to think about this. And you have to recognize as you're reading Scripture that this kingdom is, it has multiple aspects. So one of those aspects is that God's universal kingdom and that he rules over absolutely everything in creation always. But you also see that there's something in which he mediates that kingdom through the rule of his law, which you see, and he gave his command to his people through Adam and his kingdom was gonna be mediated through Adam. Adam fails to be the dominion man. He fails to be the image of God. He actually ends up being a man who points forward to, well, somebody else has to be the dominion man. Somebody else has, is the image of God and has to do what I failed to do. And so that's one of the things we're keeping up with throughout all of scriptures. We're, we're looking for, well, who's the, the last Adam? There's a lot of next Adam sort of guys because it's like, well, if this guy brought us out of rest, who's the one who brings us back into rest? And it's like, well, is it Noah? No. Is it Abraham? No. Is it one of the Levitical priest guys? No. What about David? No. But they're all pointing forward to the last Adam, ultimately. And so we're keeping up with that as we're reading through the scripture and we're seeing that God is mediating his kingdom in different ways throughout history. So you see how God mediated his kingdom in the garden is different than how it's mediated outside of the garden because now you have the, the king's presence has left the people. But there, and then you, you're wondering, well, how is God going to mediate his people coming back into his land and being his people and under his blessing? Well, as you keep reading throughout scripture, you see it's mediated different during the time of Moses, which is a particular administration. It's mediated in some unique ways throughout judges and in the times of the kings and the prophets. And all of this is under God's universal kingdom, but you see people have fallen out of being under his kingdom reign only. They have come into living in the kingdom of darkness. They've come into, you know, as we talked about in Leviticus and trying to understand those words clean and unclean, that in those two trees in the garden, you see one, one of them was clean, one of them was unclean. There was the tree of life, which represented a kingdom that was of life only. And there's another kingdom that's represented by that other tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil. And you see two different sort of kingdoms where there's one that's life only and another one where there's this tension of, well, there's good and evil. But the problem is you have, you know, God's universal kingdom over all of that and that he's the one who ultimately defines good and evil. But you also have the tension of man is also defining good and evil for himself in this kingdom that has fallen in a way outside of his kingdom, but it is under his kingdom. So that's kind of the tension that's there. Which the other aspect, you have his universal kingdom, his mediatorial kingdom, you also have his spiritual or redemptive kingdom in which God starts adopting people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You know, he starts taking people out of being in the serpent's family into the woman's family. 
He starts making things right by taking that which was stolen and rescuing a people for the sake of his name and revealing his attributes and activities, which he is a savior who saves. He's a redeemer who redeems, but he's also a judge who judges. Now, when it comes to this kingdom theme of scripture, just to bring up some passages to show you the prominence of that, I'll have you turn to Luke 4.43. Here, here we learn what Jesus preached when he came. Luke 4, 43. But he sent to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So what was it that Jesus came to preach? Yeah, the good news of the, He came to preach the main theme of the Bible. That's why I think it's a pretty good pick, since that's the, you know, like the main theme of Jesus' preaching. That he came preaching the kingdom, which, you know, if you were to try to come up with explaining to, to somebody the kingdom of God, how would you explain that to them? Like, what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Yeah, it's, it's God's reign, so see, there, there's a king, he has a people. He has a place. He has a law. He's told us how to live in his place. You know, it's those sort of things, and I think that's where that little box that I gave you, it can help you if somebody asks you that question so uh, your brain doesn't shut down and you're like, I don't know how to answer them. This is a really big question. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's the king's place and people and his power. That's what his kingdom is about, and that's what Jesus preached uh, you also see this if you turn to the book of Acts, where we see, we're going to go to Acts 1, 3. And as we heard preached last week, you know, in, in Luke, Luke started with what Jesus began to do and teach concerning his kingdom. And then in verse 3, it says, you know, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by, suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he passed on the proclamation of the kingdom to a people who would be his witnesses. And they got this. You know, in verse 6, they say, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel, so they're recognizing that God's kingdom involves this nation, Israel, that God started that was going to be a blessing to all the families of the world, and that 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 plan hasn't ceased. It's like, well, how is this plan going to go forward? They wanted to know, is it right now that you're going to do this? Which you remember during Jesus' uh, ministry, they thought, this is it. Yeah, he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to uh, bring in you know, his law and reign as the king over absolutely everybody. But that's not how his kingdom came. It wasn't like the kings of this earth. He came in a way that was perplexing to others instead of uh, 
ruling over everybody. He, he comes as a servant and he suffers and he suffers and then he sends out his people as witnesses that join him in that suffering and he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And that phrase tying back into Isaiah 49, talking about God sending out his witnesses of suffering servants who are linked to the suffering servant to continue to spread his message to the end of the earth, which that's what we read about happening in the book of Acts. Now if you turn to the last verse in Acts, it's 2831. We read that Jesus' followers did what Jesus did in proclaiming the kingdom. So what preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. So what is the church's mission? What do we do? Yeah, we, we preach the kingdom. What do you think? I need to know what the kingdom is. <laughs> I need to know how to explain this to people. So that's something we want to keep up within Scripture. We see that it's its main theme. It begins in Genesis. It continues in Revelation and beyond. And so we're keeping up with God's kingdom, his land, his seed, his blessing, where his presence is, his precepts that he teaches throughout all of scripture. And all of this is framed by God's covenants. When you think about that here in scripture, when we talk about the reign of God, we have his kingdom and he also makes covenants outside of the garden. And what the covenants do, it's kind of like you're putting together a puzzle. And when you put together a puzzle, what's the first thing you do if you do it correctly? <laughs> yeah, you build the outside. Good, we don't have any like rebellious, confused people in here. <laughs> so you build the outer, you get the frame of it first, and then you build in the, the middle. So that's what covenants do. They, they, they frame all of history. Everything has to happen within the, the covenants and then they forward history and that everything has to fill in that particular way. So what, what is the first covenant in the Bible? Okay, some people are saying Abraham. Who wants to go earlier? Noahic. Does anybody want to suggest a, a covenant that is not called a covenant in the Bible that comes even earlier? All right, so somebody suggested the Adamic covenant, which uh, is not called a covenant in Scripture. And I think that one of the reasons we don't see it as a covenant is, well, one, the Bible never calls it a covenant, and two, because of what covenants do. What, what covenants do, as you see I'm putting that box, they, they mediate God's redemptive plan. God did not need to mediate a redemptive plan in the garden. He didn't need to make a covenant to establish a relationship with Adam because he already had one. And that's the purpose of a covenant is to establish a particular relationship where there wasn't one. And the first covenant in the Bible, for those of you who said the Noahic covenant, we have some candy in the office. If you go in there and visit, you can grab one piece out of there. 
The rest of you, maybe I'll ask you next week and you can get a piece of candy too. So Genesis 9 is where we see the first covenant in Scripture. If you want to turn there, I'm going to look at 9, beginning in verse 8, Genesis 9, verse 8. It says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth, earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. So you look at this covenant. Who did God make it with? Yeah, everything in creation. Absolutely everything. And he gave a sign of it, which was he hung his war weapon in the sky to show he's not going to just totally dispose of this creation until he has carried out his plan of bringing everything back into his rest. So we start building the puzzle here of God's kingdom and how it's going to work. God's kingdom includes everything. And I understand the Noahic covenant to be like railroad tracks that God's going to put his you know train of rest onto it that's right you got to give like a good long long short long was that just one long I, the trains do that they drive by my house they're not consistent in keeping the rule of the long long short long thing anyways if you want to watch trains you can come over for lunch on Saturday sometime The Noahic Covenant is the platform in which God's redemptive plan is going to carry out. It's the platform for every other covenant. You know, everything has to move to God's rest. It's the ultimate goal of all creation, which we're going to talk more about this in the summer. We're going to talk in more detail about the kingdom and the covenants. But then that leads you to, well, you know, what, uh, what are the pieces of the train that are going to go down these train tracks? Well, that's the Abrahamic Covenant which its main elements are LSB, the land, the seed, and blessing. But you can put those carts on, on the track, but if you don't have an engine to drive it, it's not going to go anywhere. So that's going to tie into the other future covenants that will be made. What, what covenants made after Abraham? Yeah, mosaic, which, you know, this is like what, what happened. You have this guy, he shows you a model ticket booth. And he's like, well, the way that you get on a train is that you buy tickets out of a ticket booth, but the tickets are super expensive. You're like, man, I can't buy one, and I need a real ticket booth. <laughs> and then it's, that's all that the Mosaic Covenant does. It just instructs on how you can get a ticket, and it points out the fact that you need one, but you can't afford one. So I said, well, how is this going to work? Well, there's another covenant we're going to read about in Numbers as we get into that, which is the least famous of all of the covenants. But 
Maybe somehow in my lifetime I'll be able to re-promote it. The priestly covenant, it's made with Phineas. And the point of that is like, well, you know, I can't buy a ticket. I need to have a ticket. This model ticket booth doesn't work to get tickets. What am I going to do? Well, in the priestly covenant, we find out God will accept a substitute. He'll accept a substitute like Phineas who does the righteous thing that you failed to do in your place so that you can be rescued. It's like, well, that's a pretty good deal, but I mean, who's the guy who pulls that off ultimately, which leads us to the next covenant, Davidic covenant. You know, he's going to be, which is something you already see going back to Genesis 49 and what the, it was promised from the tribe of Judah, there would be one who is a, a lion, who is the stone of Israel, who is a scepter and a shepherd. A shepherd. You're like, who is this guy? It's like, well, David is a shepherd warrior and a king, so maybe he's the forever king of the forever kingdom. Eh, not David. Turns out he did some bad stuff and he's not the guy, but he would, he would, you know, under the Mosaic administration, point forward to the, the king who would come and in the Davidic covenant. There in 2 Samuel 7, you read that there's going to be a forever king of a forever kingdom. He'll be a forever king because he never sins and therefore he never dies. He never gets the wages of sin be, uh, because he never sins. But he's actually going to take on the debt of the sin of his people on himself to pay their eternal debt with his eternal worth and then rise again from the dead on the third day because he's in charge of life. But here's the problem. Now we know who, who the guy is, but the problem is we don't want that guy. We have no interest in him. We don't, we don't like him. We don't like his law. We don't want him to rule over us. We would rather have Saul handsome and tall. That's the people's choice for a king, but you know God's choice is somebody else that he would choose rather than the people, but we need our hearts to turn toward him, which is where, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it, well, actually, this is at the end of Deuteronomy, where this all starts, the, you know, looking forward to the new covenant, where, you know, Moses ends his life telling people that they're evil, and they need to circumcise their hearts, and he tells them, you can't do it, and you won't do it. You can't circumcise your heart and you don't want to and therefore you're not going to do it. And he says, but God's going to do it for you one day. And then he leaves and he dies. And then a lot of years go on and that this is more uh, explicitly expressed in, in Jeremiah 31 to 33 where we see all of the covenants, even the priestly covenant is mentioned in there in Jeremiah 31 to 33 and the promise of a new covenant where God gives new hearts whereby we could enter into his rest, inherit the land and seed and blessing, all of that stuff related to Abraham. It takes the place of the Mosaic administration because the Mosaic administration can't do what only Christ administration can do in the new covenant and he is the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant which you know all, all of this stuff when you keep up with it it makes getting to the book of Matthew really exciting because it, it pulls in on the genealogy on looking at Abraham and David it's like why is he focusing on Abraham and David 
said, well, because that, that's where God promised that the seed and the king would come. And he said, this is that guy. This is Jesus' genealogy. You know, he's the fulfiller of these things, which he fulfills them partially in his first coming and fully in his second coming. So what covenants do, they, they frame and forward history. What you remember that word remember that we always see next to covenants, you know, uh, God remembering his covenants. Back in Genesis 9.15, it says when God will see his bow in the, the sky, he says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, which again, the idea is to show he's still forwarding his covenant. And you remember that every time that you see a rainbow, it's like this is a sign that God is still forwarding, moving that train down the railroad of rest. Everything's moving toward that goal. He's going to do it. He's, he's faithful. So while we're reading scripture, we want to keep up with God teaching us his attributes and activities, what's going on with his kingdom and the multiple aspects of it and all of the covenants and how they develop. So this is important when you're reading the Bible to think about which covenants are operative at this point. So you don't end up confusing, you know, the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant or reading promises and Proverbs and thinking, well, like I obeyed God. Why is it not raining on my garden right now? Because it says that if I obey him, it'll, it'll rain and I'll have fruitful harvest instead of like, uh, what do you call them, pill bugs instead of roly-polies? And then those other creepy things, the, the silverfish with the little thing on their tails, also known as what? Earwigs, that's right. Those are creepy. So though, those were promises specific in the Mosaic Covenant, which is uh, you know, no longer uh, operative. That's why it's not working like that. But it helps you to read Proverbs correctly because you recognize it's under that particular administration. Now, the purpose of the Bible, and you see in parentheses, and our lives, is to reveal God as creator and redeemer. Which I take that from, you know, the, as God reveals his name in the first two chapters of the Bible. First we read, in the beginning, God. Chapter two, we read about Yahweh, God. So, you know, just God by itself emphasizes him being creator. Yahweh is his covenant name to show that He's in covenant with a certain people to redeem them. So these are the main things that he's wanting to communicate about himself, that he is creator, he owns everything, and he's a redeemer. Now, it's also important in reading the Bible not only to understand the emphasis on the kingdom and the covenants, but the structure of the Bible, which is what that next fancy little chart is about there and before I explain that I want you to turn over to Luke 24 44 which was read to us last week in the main service 24 and here we get some insight in to Jesus's Bible and how it worked in Luke 24 Jesus said to these fellows on the road to Emmaus, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Jews would refer to this as the Tanakh. Their Bible is the T-N-K. They had the, the Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketavim was the threefold division of their Bible. And we see Jesus recognizing that and referring back to the Hebrew Bible and its three, three parts as the Law of Moses, that's the Torah, the Prophets, which is the Nevaim, and the Psalms, which this section, sometimes this book, section of the Hebrew Bible is called Psalms or the Writings, which is where you get the K for the Ketuvim. And there were some Jews in a document that preceded Jesus that wrote out the order of books within the law, the prophets, and the writings, and how their Bible was ordered, so we kind of have an idea of what Jesus' Bible was like. And that's what I've given you in this particular chart where you see the one division is the law. Yeah, you have Genesis through Deuteronomy. But then you have the prophets, which breaks out in two categories, former and latter prophets, which it's interesting to think how the prophets begins with Joshua. And then at the end of the prophets is the 12. So that's the minor prophets, guys. So what's nice if you memorize the order of Jesus' Bible, you don't have to know every minor prophet. You just have to know the 12. So it makes your Bible memorization song for all the books in the Bible way easier. And then that next section, the writings, which begins with Ruth and it ends with Chronicles. Jesus' Bible ends with Chronicles, which is a really helpful insight because it's how he talked about the Bible and he talks about uh, these martyrs, these guys all the way from Abel to that other guy, son of Berechiah at the end, which you know, that guy's not in Malachi, which is like, oh, wait, the last book in Jesus' Bible is Chronicles. So he's saying, oh, the martyrs all the way from the first one, Abel, to the last one in Chronicles because that's how their Bible worked then. So it helps to you know, solve some of those enigmas. So what was the purpose of the law well, as you see at the top of that, see, uh, you have God's law established in Genesis through Deuteronomy. In a way, it was the Bible of the time. It, it was what the prophets enforced. So you see the next thing there, the, the law is enforced in the prophets. It's like, well, what did they do? Well, they didn't so much give continued revelation as much as they, they preached the law and they prayed the law, that's what they proclaimed. So that's what uh, I mean by enforced, in that they proclaimed that word and they prayed it. And then in the writings, you have the law is being enjoyed. But you see this especially in Psalm 119, and the psalmist saying, you know, oh, oh how I love your law. He's saying, oh, how I love your instruction. I love your principles. I love learning about how you think about things because it makes me more wise than all of my enemies. You know, I, I delight in coming to understand you and how your world works and how I can enjoy living in you and under your blessing. Now, uh, I'm not super dogmatic about this sort of structure here, if you're, you're wondering that. Some of these books, like Ruth, it's kind of hard to pin down exactly where it, where it fits. That's a really long discussion that, that we, don't, we don't need to have, but just know you don't need to be dogmatic about this and tell people, well, Ruth should come before Psalms or I'm going to start a new denomination. <laughs> so 
we're going to be okay with Ruth where it is in our Bible today. Uh, you see a, a sort of parallel of this threefold division coming into the New Testament where the Gospels parallel the establishing of the law, but instead of it being Old Covenant, you have the establishing of the New Covenant. So then what happens when you come to Acts? Well, Acts is like the beginning of the prophets, but it's the New Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles who were enforcing what Jesus had established in the New Covenant. They're proclaiming what he had taught them. And then the later epistles and Revelation are about enjoying God and who he is. And at the very bottom of that chart, one of the things that I think is helpful in reading your Bible is seeing where there's certain sections that are narrative and other sections that are commentary on the narrative. So this is you're seeing the story of Scripture develop. So, for example, there in the First Testament, the, the history develops from Genesis to Kings. And then during that time of Joshua and Kings... When you move to Jeremiah and the 12, you're not getting more narrative, but you're getting the prophet's commentary on the other prophet's narrative. So you're not getting more to the story, but you're getting some uh, theological interpretation on what happened then, which is also something we see that happens with the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends up continuing the, the narrative under the new covenant, but then the epistles are all commentary on what happened during that point in history. Now, we don't get every single epistle written during the time of Acts, but almost all of them, almost all of them. And there's a bazillion things that could be said about this, but another point of interest is you see how there on the far right of the chart in the First Testament, you have Daniel there at the top, and then in the New Testament, you have Revelation do those books have anything to do with each other? Yeah, all sorts of connections, which it kind of helps you to see you, you need to understand Daniel before you understand, before you can understand Revelation because Revelation is paralleled to, to Daniel and he's not reteaching Daniel, he's just assuming you already know what Daniel has said. Therefore, I can just reference him and you get what I'm talking about and I can tell you some more new things. which there's this element in which it's like, this is kind of over overwhelming because I want to understand Revelation, but that means I have to understand Daniel. If I'm going to understand Daniel, I need to understand Genesis to Daniel, and then I need to understand Daniel to Revelation. Right, right. But don't get overwhelmed, but instead be excited that you're always going to continue to uncover new truths to be excited about our God. And we would expect it to be such because uh, he is an eternal being of joy. I, you know, e even when we're with him in eternity, forever, we're, never gonna, we're not just gonna show up and get the whole message on the road to Emmaus and be like, all right, now we know the whole, the whole Bible. Let's just like go fly and walk through walls and go mountain biking and use our plowshares that we have now which all sounds really cool to me. <laughs> but I say that to, you know, instead of being overwhelmed and think about how you're never going to <laughs> understand it, but to just recognize, oh, I'm, I'm always going to find new things to be excited about, but also to be humbled by your ignorance. 
but to recognize that God, God will help us with our, our ignorance and he's gonna be patient with us and continue to, uh, to teach us. Any, any questions about that section before we look at the back of this handout? All right, when it, when it comes to reading the Bible, we wanna think about our hermeneutic. We want to interpret the Bible well, the way that it was written. You know, we want to read it the way that it was written. We want to read it the same way that all the Bible authors read it. So when we think about hermeneutics, which means what? John Whipperman, what are hermeneutics? <sighs> Be more specific. <laughs> That was a high five from the front of the room to the back of the room, the art and science of interpretation. So you see that there, there is a sort of science to it and that we're dealing with types of literature, we're dealing with grammar and sentences and we're dealing with studying history, but there's also a, an art to it and handling it correctly and figuring these things out. So hermeneutics, you know, intro, it's just how you interpret the Bible, but we want to interpret it the way that the biblical authors did. You know, hermeneutics isn't something that was, you know, invented in the 1980s in a book that Roy Zook wrote called Bible Interpretation. You know, we, we want to have God's hermeneutic. We want to have the biblical author's hermeneutic. And we see, we see this part in, you know, so... Well, Psalm 19, I have that reference there. Uh, we have a hermeneutic of surrendering to God's authority. We fear God by forsaking our sin and following him. You know, who is the one that the Lord looks to? It's the one who, in Isaiah 66, 2, it's the one who's contrite, they're humble, they tremble before God's word, right? So we don't look to have uh, the Bible surrender to our pre-understandings. Pre the Bible doesn't uh, surrender itself to uh, our confession or our statement of faith, but you know, our confession, our statement of faith should come from the Bible and always be corrected by it. So we don't show up to the Bible with a theology and then try to fit the Bible into it. So one of the ways that happens is, you know, as we, as we had talked about the covenants, there are some brothers who would, uh, they understand the covenants by some invented theological covenants, uh, covenants of redemption and covenant of works, covenant of grace, which the Bible doesn't teach that, but they use them as theological interpretive grids throughout scripture, which they're not totally wrong in uh, the conclusions that they come to with those. But when you have an interpretive grid that you show up to the Bible with that the Bible didn't give you, you're going to end up coming to some wrong conclusions. If you have any questions about that, we'll have to talk about it another time because we'll run out of time. But do ask those questions and uh, we can do some something in the future perhaps on covenantalism versus dispensationalism and understanding those isms. We want to have a hermeneutic of surrender where we're not just fearing God, but we're seeking the author's intent. Now, when you think about that, and scripture, that will save you all sorts of trouble in your Bible reading to just ask, was that the author's intent? Did he mean to, to communicate the conclusion that I'm coming to and can I prove it from the text? 
Uh, we want to make sure that we're doing that and we're not going beyond what was written. That is very easy to do. Uh, we can all be tempted in that way. And uh, I mean, we could even take a simple concept like love and think of our understanding of love and then read it into how God communicates his love. And, but we should start with, well, how does God define love? And then that's how I, I should understand it. Or even like you know, the, the covenants issue. Well, how does God understand covenants and what did he communicate about them because i want to think about them and talk about them the same way that he does in scripture uh, i have there as a a reference text second peter 1 20 to 21 it says knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So one of the things that we see here is this concept of there's dual authorship in Scripture. That it, it's from God, but it's through man. It's like, well, how did it end up in you know, the, the human realm? Through man. But who was superintending that? Who did it originate from? Not from man. But from God and his will, he graciously gave it to us through men who were superintended by his spirit. Now, recognizing that there is a, a dual authorship to scripture doesn't mean that you have two intentions. Doesn't mean that, well, God had one intention and then man had another. But rather, they're synonymous. There's just one intent. And it wasn't that, well, we look, well, this is probably what Peter intended, but God intended this other thing that me being super smart, I was able to figure it out even though Peter didn't know about it. Uh, if you ever think that, you were wrong. <laughs> and, and we want to guard ourselves from that to recognize that you know, what God intended is exactly what Peter intended or Paul intended or Isaiah intended. There weren't uh, competing or different intentions. Also, when it comes to having a hermeneutic of surrender, point three there is believe that you can know what it means and must. I reference Deuteronomy 6 there, where they're told to, to teach it to their children. So it's like, oh, you can understand these things well enough to teach it, and your kids can understand it too. So it's, you can know what it means, and you must. This is a moral obligation. And so we want to seek... Uh, we want to fear God, to seek his intent through his word, and believe, I can actually know what this says. I don't have to just write it off and say, well, it's a mystery. Nobody can understand it. Well, if it's been revealed to us, it's ours. We can understand it. And just because it, it's hard doesn't mean it can't be known. You think about it just like with the calculus book. You know, say, oh, well, this book is hard, so it's just not clear. So nobody can really know it. It's like, no, you just have to work harder. Uh, the problem's not with the book. The problem's with you. <laughs> you know, it's like that with the Bible. You know, we're the problem. The Bible's not the problem. We need to, to learn more. It is clear, but it takes hard work to be clear on what is written. Therefore, we pray. Why are there hard texts in the Bible? I think one of the reasons, so that we will pray. And say, Lord, I, I don't understand this. But I know that you, you gave it to us this way for a purpose. Help me to understand your intent. Help me to understand this purpose. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things 
out of your law. Illuminate the truth, and after you've illuminated truth to me, illuminate more truth, because there's always going to be more to uncover and to see and to delight in. So how do we practice this hermeneutic of surrender? Well, it's those questions that I wrote there. We have those main questions that are underlined, what, why, so what? You can ask that in any Bible passage, and it's the way that Bible logic works. Because we're out of time, we have to be super fast on my examples here. Uh, you can even think about Peter and his sermon in Acts 2. Uh, he preaches from the Psalms. He said, well, what the Psalm says is, he talks about, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He says, well, why, why did he say that? He's like, so that you people would believe in him, so that Israel would trust in him. That's why he said what he said. And so then the next question was, well, so what? What do we do? Peter says, repent and believe. That's what you do. So that's how Bible logic works. But that's, and we see that was Peter's hermeneutic. So what's our hermeneutic? We say, well, what does the Bible say? Why was it said? And so what are the implications and the applications that come out of that? Which is maybe more standard terminology that you're familiar with is we start with observation, then interpretation, and then implications or applications. And in that order, you know, we don't start with, well, I already have the application right, so therefore the interpretation must be this. And so you only observe what you thought that the Bible talked about and as opposed to starting with the Bible informing you and said you're informing the text about what it's about. And we want to watch out for that in ourselves. And those other things, you can consider them in your own private devotion time, those extra questions in there, and see how it uh, is a blessing to your life while you read through your Bible and ask those questions. The next thing I want to get to, that, that four ways of Scripture, how it applies itself. Because again, this is that hermeneutic. How does Scripture apply itself? And this is expanding on the so what question. So let's say you're in your morning devotions, you're reading, well, what Genesis 1-1 says that God created everything. Well, why does it say this? And why does it put this emphasis on God said, God said, God said? Well, why it says for us to understand everything was created by the word of God and the word of God is central in existence. You know, it's, it's absolutely primary. And it's like, well, so what does this mean for us as his creatures? When you look at how the Bible applies itself, we start, one, we worship God for his works. You see that throughout scripture, God being worshiped for creating everything, being the owner of everything, being the one who takes care of his creation. And that moves up to now we're learning theology. We're learning theology that everything in creation belongs to God and he's made us to be stewards of that particular creation. And then in learning theology, we also learn God's creation purpose is that we'd be fruitful and multiply in everything that we do so that we display his glory being spread throughout the earth. And as we saw with the, the covenants, the first covenant, Noahic covenant, we learned about theology there that God's covenant promises that everything will have its ultimate goal in going back into his rest, which leads to you know, number three throughout redemptive history, uh, it demands a moral response to us, you know, that that we not only believe that God is the creator of everything, 
but we have faith in him and we trust in him. That's just what the author of Hebrews writes about. That it's not, not just that we know that he's creator, but we trust him and we follow him. And number four, worldview in light of redemptive history, where world, you know, you're probably familiar with the, the big worldview questions. You know, where did everything come from and what's its purpose? Everything came from God and exists to glorify him. And it also answers that other worldview question. Well, what's wrong with the world? Well, sin came into the world through one man. Well, how can what's wrong be made right? Well, there's another man, but he's not the condemnation man. He's the justification man. He's not the death man, but he's the life man. This is, you know, uh, Romans chapter 5. And you read about those great statements of those parallels between Christ and Adam. You read the answer to, well, how can what's wrong be made right? Which the earlier expression of that is Genesis 3, 15, 16. You know, it's the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's how things are going to be made right. And then there's that other worldview question. Well, what is the end goal for everything? Well, the end goal for everything is the glory of God in the reign of God. You know, it's us going back into his rest, his dwelling place, God's people and God's land under God's blessing. So take this chart, use it. You can criticize it so I can improve it in the future. Keep it in your Bible. Use it in your devotional reading. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I hope that it, it's helpful. That's the reason that I, I made it. But you'll also find out uh, this is how I make my sermon outlines. If you just write out, you know, what, why, so, what, I just answer those questions over and over and over. It's like every message that I preach. Dave, you do the same thing? <laughs> I try. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's a more humble way to, re, to respond to it. I humble. Uh, I try. I try. <laughs> and God has grace for us, and he teaches us, and he's with us. He's given us his word, and he's... Uh, given us teachers in, in the church to help us to understand these things. So I'll be excited to hear how you use this chart in your own Bible reading and how it, how it helps you. And if you have any questions in the future, let me know because I can collect them and answer them in a Sunday school lesson sometime in the future. But if you don't ask me any questions, I just, I make up my own content. So I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for making us and being a God who has not only spoken everything into existence, but you speak to us through your word and you teach us about yourself that we could know you and you redeem us, that we would have the light of the knowledge of you shining out of our hearts so that we would have the power to behold your glory, though dimly in a mirror in this life with the great hope of seeing it fully in the future. We pray that you would continue to reveal the light of your word to us so that we would see you more clearly and live for you more faithfully, that we would read our Bibles and study them in a way that honors you, 
that we would live by the things that we learn and have a skill in living these things because your spirit would be at work in us to illuminate your truth, that we would appreciate your truth and to empower us to live by it. We pray also that you would help us to teach others the things that we would learn and live by as well so that we would be disciple-making disciples and your glory and your teaching would spread to the end of the earth. And thank you that this is the goal of history and that you will do it. You will invincibly build your church. Thank you for the great hope that we have and that we, we could never mess up your plan even by our weakness, even by our failures, even by our lack of ignorance. But we live by and we proclaim your word and you make yourself known and you save people for the sake of your kingdom so that you would be glorified and the one who will reign forever and ever. Amen.